Christian faith, but I'm interested in it. I'm curious about what it stands for, the teachings in it. So maybe you're here today to explore. And I just want to say we're so glad you're here doing that because this is the right place to explore where you can see the church, flaws and everything, trying to live out this Christian faith. And there's others of us who know Jesus, and we've experienced his love personally and his forgiveness personally. And for all of us, I want us to see God's love and forgiveness and move us either to turn to him and put our faith in him for the first time or to live out our faith in him toward one another. So that's what we're going to do today. You know, we were gone for a few weeks in Grand Rapids, and when we got home, our swimming pool was green. I didn't leave the pump on. So when Erica got home, the pool was green. I knew it was going to happen. We're out in Grand Rapids. I'm like, all right, babe, when you get home, that's what you got to do. First thing you do when you pull in the garage, turn on the pump, get some of the, that bag of shock in the garage. You got to dump that thing in the pool, load it up with chlorine, and let that thing run all night. And so uh, she got home. She said she saw the pool, and she saw it was indeed green and was like, this isn't happening. It ain't going back. This thing's done. You ever seen a green swimming pool? It looks beyond help. The algae is built up. It's grimy. It looks irreparable. And so when she got home, she was a a doubter of it, she was telling me. And she she took the shock, turned on the pump, dumped it in the pool, threw in the chlorine. And she said in a matter of maybe 20, 30 minutes, the pool cleared up. The shock had actually got in there and... Just changed the chemistry of the pool, so to speak, and took what was beyond belief messed up and made it swimmable again. See, swimming pools are made for swimming, in case you didn't know. So a green swimming pool is not living according to its purpose until it gets shocked, until it gets changed from within in order that it could be what it was made to be. And this really is what it is to be a Christian. You see, our hearts were worse than that pool. We were born in sin, the Bible says. We were LG stricken, and we could not then live according to our purpose until we met Jesus, until we meet Jesus, until we put our faith in him, and his radical love is shocking to us and takes what was filthy and makes it clean. He takes what has been given up on and makes it new. God's love is shocking, so to speak. But he does it not so that we can say, look how clean we've been made, but we say we want to function according to our purpose. And part of our purpose as a church is to live life together, demonstrating God's love in our lives to each other and to a world that's dying so that they too can know this Jesus who died for them. But that begins with our ability oftentimes to offer the same forgiveness that was offered to us. And I know that for some of you here just... Me mentioning forgiving somebody brings somebody into your mind that you would rather not forgive. I I know offenses span from the most minuscule things that hurt your feelings to the greatest of offenses that have crushed you. People have sinned against you in a variety of ways. And so just saying forgiveness I know is a big deal. 
And so I don't want to minimize your very real hurts and pains. I don't want to do that. I know what it means to be hurt. We know what it means to hurt. We know what it means to hurt each other. But what I want you to come away with today is that God's love and forgiveness is deeper even than your wounds. And he can give you freedom from your wounds as you are able to forgive even the greatest of offenses. And so our foundation is the love of God found in Christ Jesus. So if you have a Bible, turn with me, please, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 is towards the end of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there is one right there in front of you in that pew, a blue Bible. And in the very opening pages, there is a table of contents, which all the books of the Bible are there. And to tell you the page number, their different ones are on. Colossians is in the New Testament, in the middle of the New Testament, which means it's towards the back of your Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we really mean this. Please, please take the one in front of you because that's our gift to you. We believe it's God's word. And we want you to have this firecracker in your hands. It is uh, amazing. So we're going to find ourselves in Colossians chapter 3. But I'm going to back it up a little bit and give you kind of a a context before we get to chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Let's actually look at those those verses first, and then I'll back up. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. This is what God's Word tells us. It says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as, can you say as? As "As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. See, Paul gives this imperative, this command to put on this new self, which leads people to bear with one another and forgive one another. But he gives them a foundation before stating this command. Hey, church, I want you to understand this. God never tells us, do this and do that, and leaves it as such. God has caused his children to be born again and given us a new life and put his Holy Spirit within us. And because of that, he gives us commands on what to do for the best of our lives and for the uh, glorification of his name. But it's all founded on him empowering us and giving us a new life. God doesn't say, go do something that you don't have the power to do, but he empowers you to do it. So when the Bible says to forgive one another and to bear with one another, it means then that God has given you the capability by his Holy Spirit to bear with and forgive one another. So if you're a Christian today, as hard as it might be for you to believe it, you have the capability by God's grace to extend forgiveness even to the deepest of offenses. And if you're not a child of God today, I know your offenses are eating you up, the ones even that you've been done to you. And I want you to know you can find freedom today, real freedom, because of Jesus and the forgiveness he offers you, and the forgiveness then you can offer others. See, in the book of Colossians, Paul talks about this. He opens up, it's a letter to a church in a city called Colossae, which is why it's called Colossians. And what he wants to do is, he wants people to understand that there are false teachers out there, as there are in our own day, on TV, on the radio, everywhere. There are false teachers 
that spread a false message about God's forgiveness. And what Paul wants to do is to correct these false teachings and making sure the church is grounded in the truth. And in the very, uh, very beginning of Colossians, he wants them to understand this one thing about Jesus, as he says here in chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That Jesus is God himself, the invisible God, made visible to humanity when he came to this earth. Paul calls him the firstborn of creation, not to say he was created and was birthed, but the firstborn in the household in the ancient Near Eastern culture was the heir of the father's possessions. And in the same way, Jesus is the heir of, the father's, of all the father has. And so Jesus, who is God, is the heir of creation. Paul goes on to say that Jesus created this earth, that he sustains this earth, and that he purchased his church with his own blood. And Paul says, I want you, church, to understand this. Because that's the basis from which we live our lives. And then in chapter 2, he tells them in verse 6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. So now I want you to walk in the manner that you saw Jesus love you. Well, how did he love us? Well, let's look here in chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Paul says, you are a dead man walking, a dead woman walking. You are born in this way, separated from God on a one-way ticket to hell for all of eternity. Until Jesus came and stepped in for you. How did he do this? Look at verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, how? Nailing it to the cross. We had a debt we owed to God, and Jesus paid it down for us. Some of you guys have seen, and hopefully this is not you, what it means to be an out-of-control spender. When you're an out-of-control spender, you don't have limitations on your spending. You can max out one credit card after the other after the other, and you accrue so much debt that before you know it, you're looking at it like, what do I do? I was intrigued by this idea of debt, and I looked up, what is the most indebted person in the world right now? You're interested about that, aren't you? And there's a man, I believe he's from Russia, who's right now $6 billion in debt. And you ask, how in the world can you get $6 billion in debt? Well, the guy's a criminal. What he did was he was manipulating the financial markets and over years had accumulated some $6 billion in debt, of money. But when he was found out, he was sentenced to so many years in prison and he was required to repay his debt. So he's doubly indebted. He's indebted to the justice system having to paid for his crime in prison, and he's indebted to those he's cheated, and he's got to pay back his crime, his, uh, the money he's taken from them. Six billion dollars in debt. I'm sure this man is in prison right now thinking that's never going to happen. It is impossible. I can't imagine being six billion dollars. There's no way it would happen. I'm not going to make that much in my lifetime, no matter what happens, even if I play for the NBA. I mean, those guys are getting all kinds of crazy money right now. But $6 billion. And so when someone is in debt, 
there needs to be a payment. And I know for all of us, the different kinds of debts we have, whether it be car or home or credit card or school, we look forward to the day where a stamp on our bill says, paid in full. But even if you took out another loan to help pay off the one loan, maybe you get a better interest rate, but at the end of the day, you're still indebted. But if someone says, you know what, I'm going to pay it for you, and you're not going to owe me nothing. I'm going to pay it $10 a day. And you're thinking, that's wonderful, and I appreciate you paying it off, but until it says zero, I'm still indebted. And so what the Bible teaches us, and what Paul is showing us here, is that we have a debt before God that goes beyond $6 billion. And there is no daily repayment that we can give back because we're still indebted. So you can be as good of a person as you want to be. You can get up and pray three hours before your day starts and three hours before your day ends. You can give $100 a day to the poor. You can love people radically, but not one of those actions can pay down your debt before God because God is perfect, and guess what? You are not. He is a holy God. We are unholy people. How can unholiness be with holiness for eternity? How can darkness live with light? How can impurity live with purity? God says, you're not like me. You are other. You deserve debt because you are indebted to me. We can't pay it back. What needed to happen was that somebody who was a human like us needed to stand in our place. And that person, though, needed to be perfect because they, if they were flawed, how can they pay for our penalty? Because we're flawed, too. But that one had to be perfect, obeying the laws perfectly. That person had to pay the price for it. But God's word says that the penalty of sin is death. So that person had to live a perfect life, had to die for us. But someone who is dead is dead. And so, yeah, I'm forgiven, but then tomorrow I mess up again. Now what? But we need someone who could then raise from the dead and have a new life that could be given to us so that when God sees us, he sees the perfection of the one who's been raised to life. And that's Jesus. And Paul says to the Colossians that Jesus paid down your debt in one swift action of his death and resurrection as one event. And at that moment, your debt was forgiven. Yeah, even those things you're thinking right now that no one else knows. When we put our faith in Jesus, God knows our hearts. He knows our rebellion. He knows the way we've hurt people. He knows the thoughts that enter our mind. He knows the words that exit our mouths. He knows what we do in secret. And he says, even still, I know you. When you put your faith in my son, you are paid in full. You're paid in full. There is nothing that can make you pay down your debt. God had to do it. It's from this place that Paul speaks. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, when we put our faith in him, we died with him, we were raised up with him, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
What Paul is saying is God has now empowered us to have a mindset, a heaven's mentality that puts this world in its right place so we can better understand our place in the world. That's what God has done for us. And what follows then is what he says here in verse 5. Put to death, therefore. And he lists five things. He's saying, don't do this anymore. This is not who you are. You died. You're a new person. So don't do these things, not by your own strength, but by God's strength. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Number one, sexual immorality. Number two, impurity. Number three, passions, which is to speak of lusts. Number four, evil desires. And number five, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because on account of these, Paul says, the wrath of God is coming. God's coming to judge this kinds of sin as all kinds of sin, because all kinds of sins separate us from God. Verse 7, and these you too once walked. Can you say once walked? walked. See, if you're a child of God, you once walked the way you used to walk, but now you walk differently. You used to walk as one who was indebted. Now you walk as one who's paid in full. You used to walk as one who didn't know what to do with your sin problem. Now you walk as one who knows Jesus did something with it. You used to walk imperfect, and now you still walk imperfect. But now you walk, though clothed with the perfection of Christ, as an imperfect person. See, Paul says, you once walked this way. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. And he adds more anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and you put on the new self. One Christian rapper says, if you put off and don't put on, you're going to wake up cold. So we put off the old man, we put on the new man, the new woman, the new person God has made us to be. And we jump down in verse 12, put on then what? As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, what? He told us to take off five, and I told us to put on these five. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, number five. See, what Paul is saying is when God changes us, when he saves us from our sin, when he makes us a new person, he empowers us to have victory over our vices and live in virtue. He takes us from flesh and makes us into spirit, takes us old and makes us new. He takes us from death and gives us life. And now he says, put on then these things. The word put on is to get dressed for the occasion. You will never find a soldier on the battlefield with a fitted cap and a baseball jersey because that's not dressed for the occasion. And so when we become a child of God, we enter into a spiritual war. And to be dressed for the occasion is to do battle with God's weaponry. And part of that is prayer and the word of God as we see in Ephesians 6. But also part of that is the character that the spirit of God wants to make in us. These five things. But he says to put these on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So now I'm coming back around to forgiveness and bearing with one another. Trust me. So bear with me. Bear with me. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Three identities he, com- he gives to us. He says, this is who you are, therefore live accordingly. We are God's chosen ones. That means God has chosen us. You never chose God. We didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what? I'm done being a hater of God. Today I'm going to love God. When we turn to God, it's because God has moved our heart to turn to him. He has chosen us. Ephesians 1 says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the earth. 
If you want some apples, you're going to go to Jewel or wherever. Has a better sale than Jewel. And when you go to get apples, you go to this produce aisle, you pick up an apple, and what do you do with it? You examine that thing. If it's got a gash in it, what do you do? You put it back. If you pick it up and it's like squishy in your hands, what do you do? You put it back. If it's discolored or disfigured in any way, we put it back because that's how we choose. But as God's chosen ones, we must understand that God does not choose that way. Because if he picked us up, he would see it all bruised and disfigured and broken and beaten, and he would have put us back. But we're not chosen because of our own merits. We're chosen because of God's love. And it's not that God chose us in the produce aisle, but he chose us before the foundation of the earth, which is to say he chose us before we got in the food truck or before we left the apple orchard or before we were on the tree or before we were a seed in the ground. Before the foundation of the earth, God has chosen his children to redeem them. And Paul says that's your identity. You've been chosen by God and you are holy See, earlier in the chapter, he says that we are hidden in Christ, which means he clothes us with his righteousness. So God sees us as his chosen one who is holy because he sees Jesus covering us, and he calls us beloved. That means one in whom he has displayed his love. And his greatest love on display was at the cross when he saved you and saved me. It canceled our debt and took our sin, took our shame, took our guilt, took our rebellion, our lying, our cheating, our stealing, our speaking, all that trash we brought into the picture. Jesus took it. And so Paul says, on that basis, chosen, holy, beloved, put on these five things. And we see this list, compassionate hearts, and you think, man, that's a good thing. I want to be able to see through people's facades, and I want to see their, heart, their hurts. I want to see that. So he says, yeah, let's have compassionate hearts where we see people and we're just, we just feel a certain burden for them because we love them genuinely. Put on kindness. That's doing something for their benefit. Yeah, I want to do that. I want to be that kind of person who's kind to another. Let's put on humility. Yeah, I don't want to be an arrogant person. I want to think about other people's needs before mine. Put on meekness. That's gentleness and behavior, not being harsh in the way you go about doing things. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? I mean, I don't want to be a harsh person. Fifthly, let's be patient. That's a state of calm in the midst of being provoked. Yeah, I want to be a patient person. God, yeah, let's do this. Put on the new self, God. And then verse 13 happens. And Paul says, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And right away we're like, you mean bear with people? That real annoying person over there gets on my last nerve every time I thought it was my last nerve. That person? You want me to bear with them? I'll be kind. I'll be meek. I'll be gentle. I'll be all these things. But I'm not bearing with that anymore. Forgiveness? Nah. You know how bad they hurt me? You see, but when Jesus has come to save us, he's demonstrated radical bearing and radical forgiving so that we then can be the ones who are shocked into God's love and demonstrate that into our worlds. To bear with one another means to endure and to patiently wait for, but let's be honest, it's to put up with people that annoy you. 
is that person who just really drives you crazy. I mean, think about what we say. I can't bear it anymore. I can't stand them. I can't take it. Because it pushes us to the test. It makes all those qualities we don't ever want to see have to come on out like, like patience. Like being loving. And bearing with someone, someone has a lot to do with time and frequency, doesn't it? I mean, if someone annoys you in the moment, like, okay, whatever, I'm done with it, let's move on. But if they're, like, perpetually annoying to you, and they do it, like, every day, now I got to bear with it. It's like the difference between stubbing your pinky toe and breaking it. You, you stub your pinky toe, you know it's going gonna, it's gonna to zing, man. It's going to be right here. But after, like, a few moments, you're like, all right, it's good. And you're not going to say, like, you know what, man, today I stubbed my pinky toe and I had to bear with it. Everyone's like, everyone, everyone stubs their pinky toe. Get over it, you know. But if someone says, man, I stubbed my pinky toe and I broke that thing. And all of a sudden we're like, ooh, that's why you're walking like that? And then they're like, yeah, I got to bear with this now. I got to bear with this boot on my foot. I got to bear with this discomfort. I got to bear with the pain. I got to bear with wearing chanclas because I can't fit my gym shoes anymore. I got to bear with these things. There's a difference there. Because it's the frequency of the pain and the, and the breaking there in your pinky toe. And the same is true when we're walking with one another. It's, it's not hard to bear with someone who just annoys you once or frustrates you once, but it's the ongoing nature of it. And it doesn't have to be something that's inherently sinful. I sat down in Grand Rapids and Barnes & Noble, and I thought, God, what does it mean to annoy somebody, or to bear with somebody? What are some annoyances? And I was having a hard time thinking, and you guys were like, Really? I was like, yeah. And then I started writing. I started writing. Think about the way people bear with me. I'm writing. The way God bears with me, I'm writing. And I listed, listed some 21 different ways you can bear with somebody, or you need to bear with somebody. 21 different reasons. And I guarantee you, you've been pressed on any of these. When a person doesn't listen well, will you bear with them? When they talk a lot and don't let you talk, Will you bear with them? When they talk too little and you're like, come on here, come on, will you bear with them? When they forget your name, when they let you down again, when they said something insensitive, when they said something flat out hurtful or ignorant, when they didn't respond to your text right away, when they didn't pick up the phone when you called, if anybody does that anymore these days, call that is. When they didn't call you and you wanted them to. When they forgot to invite you. When they didn't make that post about you on your birthday. They did theirs, not mine. It's not a sin to not post, but we need to learn to bear with that. When they got angry, when you challenged them. Or when you got angry because they challenged you. When they lost, the, lost something, you borrowed them. When they asked you how you're doing and didn't really want to know the answer. When they didn't apologize when you think they should have. When they didn't say hi. When they didn't hold the door for you. When they did hold the door for you. When they talked with that person longer than they talked to you. What's the common thread in all of these? You. See, a lot of times when God is putting on our hearts to bear with somebody, it's the somebody who's not the problem. But it's our view of them. 
See, bearing with one another begins with understanding, okay, God, what's going on in my heart that that really bothered me? Like, why, is that, why am I so mad that they didn't call me? God, am I, you know, is there some insecurities built up within me? God, deal with my own heart. Show me what's going on here because I need you. I need your gospel. I need the truth of Jesus to speak into this life of mine so I can be secure in you and not be so annoyed with others. But then there's these times where, no, I'm legitimately annoyed. A person's really frustrated me. See, bearing with one another means we extend grace to each other. We don't know what's going on in their lives. Or maybe we do know what's going on in their lives. Whatever the case is, it's to be able to say, hey, you're my brother. You're my sister. I love you. We're going to bear with each other. You know why? Because we're family. And we're going to make this work. And I'm going to share with you the ways that maybe you annoy me, and you're going to share with me the ways that I annoy you. And you know what? We're going to love each other through that because we're family. I'm not going to bail out of here. I'm not going to say, well, let me go find a new family that's not going to annoy me because you know what you're going to end up doing is going from place to place to place to place, never looking at the common denominator, which is the person in the mirror. And so God calls us here through the scriptures to then bear with one another. And the basis of our bearing and loving and forgiving is what Jesus has done for us. Consider the ways God bears with you. Consider all the ways you promised to God and you forgot what you already promised. Consider the ways you say, God, today's a new day. I'm not going to do it. And then tomorrow you say, God, today's a new day. I'm not going to do it. And tomorrow you say, God's a... but God's patient with us. He bears with our failures. He bears with our in- inconsistencies. He even bears with our hypocrisy. But all the times he calls us, come back to him, repent, and walk as a new person. But man, God is patient with us. Man, he bears with us. Time and again. But Paul not only says to bear with one another, he says to forgive each other. He says to forgive each other. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. This word complaint in the Greek implies that there is blame against the other person. It's not just that you're being thin-skinned, but they legitimately have sinned against you. That's what this complaint entails. So when Paul's saying, you got legitimate reasons to have been offended because somebody sinned against you in some way. In those situations, forgive each other. As, just like, in the same way that Jesus has forgiven us. See, Jesus wasn't on that cross looking at us saying, hey, you're going to say you're sorry yet? I'll forgive you, until you when you say you're sorry to me. I'll forgive you when you change the way you do things. Scripture says, while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8, 9, and 10. You see, forgiveness is not something that we only offer when we've been told, I'm sorry. Forgiveness is something we offer because it's been offered to us. As Jesus has offered to us. But there are a lot of misconceptions about forgiveness, and this is why a lot of us have difficulty forgiving other people. Sometimes we think that they don't deserve to be forgiven. How can I forgive that? They don't deserve to be forgiven. You know what they did? And just as it exits our mouth, what do we remember? Do I deserve to be forgiven? Or maybe it's forgiveness lets them off the hook. I can't forgive them. Then they don't have to, they're not going to feel bad for what they did. 
Is that for you to inflict discipline? Or is that for God? And it doesn't let them off the hook. When we sin against one another, we've sinned against one another. And forgiveness is liberating. But that person needs to go before God and get that right. That's not for you to inflict upon them. Sometimes we think, well, they need to pay for what they did. And my withholding forgiveness is part of that payment. Sometimes we think forgiveness happens in an instance. It's not true. Some people are like that. Some, some ways, sometimes God has given someone miraculous grace to extend forgiveness to the greatest offenses in almost an instance. And praise the Lord when he does that. But for most of us, it is a process. We say, I forgave. Why am I messed up today? Because you got to go back to that place of forgiveness and keep going back and going back and going back. Forgiveness, sometimes people think, means forgetting. It's not that we hold grudges against people, but sometimes offenses remain there. But we know when we forgive and when those offenses remind us of God's grace and don't provoke all kinds of anger all over again. Sometimes people think, I don't have to forgive. That's between them and God, and that is not true. Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. But then this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. I want the awkwardness of that statement to sink in for a moment. Because when I read that, I'm like, Jesus, that sounds a lot like you're saying, you forgiving me is contingent upon me forgiving others. And that seems to not be the gospel, Jesus. You told me I'm forgiven. What, What does he mean here? What does he mean when he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. I think what Jesus is saying is this. When you have been forgiven and you've been shocked by the depth of God's loving kindness towards you, then as a fruit of your forgiveness, you extend forgiveness. So you know you've been forgiven by the Father when you're forgiving others. But if you're saying, I'm holding grudges all over the place, you need to look in the mirror and say, God, have I truly received your forgiveness? Because God's forgiveness enacts a life of forgiveness. It doesn't say it makes it easy. It doesn't say it's going to happen momentarily. But it means we're in that process growing toward forgiveness with others. So forgiveness is something we must do, and God is giving you the ability to do. It's made possible through Jesus. It means no longer holding on to grudges. It means allowing God's process to work in your heart. It means extending forgiveness even when it has not been requested. Unforgiveness is like a straitjacket on your spiritual life. It will consume you. As somebody once said, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. It will consume us. And God, in his mercy, has empowered us to forgive so that we don't be, so we are not consumed 
by unforgiveness. See, this is what God teaches us in his word. We forgive as we've been forgiven. So this is why I said let God's love and forgiveness toward you compel you to demonstrate love and forgiveness toward others. That's what the gospel does for us. And that means forgiving your spouse. That means forgiving your friend. That means forgiving your child. That means forgiving your sister. Forgiving your brother. Forgiving your parent. Forgiving that stranger. Forgiving yourself. See, this is what Jesus has come to do, is to set us free from the bondages of unforgiveness in our hearts. See, for the woman who was caught in adultery in John 8, she was paraded in the streets and made a mockery of. And Jesus looked at her accusers, and he told them, whoever here is without sin, pick up a stone and stone her. And one by one, they left presence. And Jesus tells her this, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I know sometimes we have a hard time forgiving ourselves, and you need to hear these words. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you when you've put your faith in him. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Jesus paid for it. So when we're taught to bear with one another and to love one another, yeah, we understand that's a lightning rod kind of statement. But when we've been confronted with the shocking value and nature of God's love and forgiveness toward us, we then have been empowered to demonstrate that toward others. And it won't be easy. It's not going to happen overnight. But it's something that God by his spirit is leading you toward because you put off the old self, you put on the new self, you've been clothed with Christ, and you have a new life. So go, therefore, church, and let's be the church for one another. Bearing with and forgiving. Let's not believe the myths about forgiveness, that people don't deserve it, therefore I shouldn't offer it. And as I mentioned earlier, I know that our ways we've been offended can be immense, and I don't want to limit those or make you feel like they are, uh, that God doesn't recognize them. He does. But from that place, he wants you to be free, and freedom comes when you extend forgiveness. Don't let these myths win the day. It's a TV show called Mythbusters. And uh, I've never watched it. I've heard of it a number of times. And I was Googling what were some of the best episodes. And one of them came up. They're talking about hot chili peppers and what actually takes away the spiciness in your mouth. Now, you might remember all these different kinds of urban legends. So apparently what they did was they took some of the hottest hot peppers, put them in their mouths, and were seeing what was going to actually cause this fiery burning in their mouths to go away. And they tried petroleum jelly. Why would you try that? They tried toothpaste. They tried all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, they said one thing, and one thing alone took away the spiciness in their mouth, and it is what? Milk. 
See, they busted a myth that other things would do it, and we need to bust the myth that we cannot forgive others. See, we are able to forgive because only one thing has dealt with our sin problem. One thing has taken away the fiery punishment we deserved, and that's the milk of Christ's love on the cross. And because of that, we have been, we've been quenched. Our debt has been paid, and now, therefore, we can offer that to others. Church, bear with me when I tell you, let the love and forgiveness that Jesus has showed toward you compel you to extend that same love and forgiveness to others. This is God's word for us, church. And my prayer is that we would live this out in the most shocking of ways so that the world says, what is among you? And we say, it was what Christ has done for me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful um, that you've given us the ability to say, I forgive you. And Lord, um, those are not easy words to speak when we've been hurt in the deepest of ways by people we love and people we don't even know. And so Lord, um, our hurts aren't non-existent and we don't say this tritely, but God, we know that the greatest of injuries and offenses can be those in which we could say, I have forgiven them because of how Christ has forgiven me. And all the challenging things that come in living in community, then we can say, I'm going to bear with my brother. I'm going to bear with my sister because, God, you, you bear with me. And so, Lord, as we bear with and love and forgive one another, we will not only obey what your commands are, but we will be the church you've made us to be. So let those things be prominent in our lives here at the brook. Shock us, God, again by your loving kindness. Remind us of the gospel. Remind us of your amazing grace. And let that be the grace that drives our lives for your glory and for the good of your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, as we, I want us to respond to this. We know these words aren't easy. And so as we do every week, um, I want to invite our, our prayer leaders, prayer team, would you come on up? Some of you guys are going to come to the back. And um, church, I, I want us to really, I want you to think about this. As you sit here in your seats, let's, let's remain seated, uh, except for the prayer leaders. Who is somebody in your life that God is pressing on your heart that you need to bear with? That you just need to extend grace to them? Who is somebody in your life that the Holy Spirit's telling you to forgive? Maybe you've already thought you've forgiven that person. Maybe that person is no longer in your life. But let, let, let the Lord do this work in your heart even now. To even in, the, in the, the, the hurting initial parts of this, to say, God, I know you tell me to forgive, and it's so hard for me right now. Just help me get to that place. Maybe that's your prayer today. It's that first step of saying, God, I know I need this. I want this. I'm not there. Help me get there. Or maybe your heart's been so ready and you've been drinking poison for years 
and you know you need to forgive and you want to forgive, but you haven't had the courage to do it. And maybe today's message gives you the freedom to say, I can. I can say, I forgive you. And so maybe even now in your pew, you just bow your head and say, God, I forgive this person. I don't want this poison in my life anymore. I want the freedom. I don't want the straitjacket. Remove the handcuffs, God. Or maybe God's showing some ugly things in your heart when you're realizing, man, it's not everyone else who's the problem, isn't it? It's actually, it's actually my own. And so we have our prayer leaders here, church, resource, because God answers prayer. If you pray for the ability to forgive, I guarantee you by his grace as you submit to him and put on the new self, he'll give you the grace to do it and give you the freedom to walk in it. And so let one of them pray with you. Ladies come up with ladies, men come up with men. And just say, brother, sister, would you pray for me? I know I need to be here. I'm not there. I want to be here. I am here. Wherever you're at. Don't leave this room today. Don't leave this room today with a 20 ounce of poison in your hand. Let's rise to our feet, church. I want to pray before we sing this closing song. Father, I pray for that brother or sister right now. And Lord, I even ask even right now, church, if you're hearing me and you're needing to pray for the ability to extend forgiveness, maybe repeat after me in your own heart. Feel free to do it audibly if you want. Maybe it's just in your mind. Say, Father, I need your help to forgive those and that one who has hurt me. God, I don't know how to do that, but I know that with your help I can. So God, I pray that today I can be reminded of your loving kindness and forgiveness toward me and how you've given me this grace to forgive so I can live freely. So God, help me forgive. Help me to forgive, God. To walk in your freedom again. Father, for your church, may we exemplify these spirit-empowered qualities that only you can do. And Father, for those who are here today who don't know you today, Lord, and their sin is ever before them, and they've never experienced your forgiveness. Father, I pray that today they would say, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Cleanse me. Make me clean again so I can live for you. I believe you died for me to pay for the punishment, the wrath that I deserved. I believe that you raised from the dead so I can be a new person. Let that be their cry today, God those who are in your church and those who Lord you're drawing to your church move we pray even now I pray this in the name of Jesus Amen Church we want this altar to be open before you if you want to come and kneel down before the Lord